simply trying to create. And they're trying, the, the only way in which they are trying to outwork their own theology and their prose is simply because this is what they actually believe. And so when they write fiction, when they write poetry, that just naturally comes out. Uh, and, you know, and sure, some of them have more didactic purposes, like Lewis often did, but they, they did it with such joie de vivre <laughs> that, that is missing in a lot of bad Christian. Let me, let me tread on very dangerous ground. And um, that I, I must, uh, uh, I, I am a, an avid reader of C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I just, in other words, for me, he captured what you're saying. And, and I, you may be thinking, oh, yeah, because you're kind of simple-minded and childlike. And, uh, and uh, on the other hand, Tolkien never did it for me. And I know all people are shocked at this. And, and I think that Tolkien's own explanation of what he's doing with his fiction gets at something of my dissatisfaction with, with Tolkien. And that is that Tolkien is, is doing something very similar, you know, to what focus on the family. In the, uh, that is that, Oh, there was this uh, time in rural agricultural, you know, England in which things were good, in which industrialization, and for Tolkien, he says blatantly, the ring is representative of industrialization. And the coming of the ring to the Shire, you know, that destroys everything. And what he's, what he's longing for, then, is a return to a kind of pre-industrial, rural, you know, England, uh, and a kind of, of turn backward. Mm-hmm. Tell me I'm wrong and explain why that's just not right. <laughs> well, I do, I do think you're wrong. I do think, I mean, Tolkien, very, very distrustful of industrialism and industrialization, and a big part of why... Uh, actually has it is kind of twofold one because it often mars creation uh, but the other that as soon as you can mass produce anything you start mass producing bombs uh, and that's that's a paraphrase from one of his letters to his son Christopher I think who actually served in World War two uh, and so so on the one hand on the one hand you're not totally wrong in the sense that, yes, he's very distrustful of industrialization. He thinks industrialization inherently breeds war, and it breeds a very bad kind of war. No war is ultimately good, and even in Tolkien's work, you can see that. Faramir, you know, very much does not love war for its own ends, and it's seen as a downside of the people of Rohan, that they do often love war and devour for their own ends, um, and not you know, Faramir has a, a quote, something along the lines of, I do not love the sword for its brightness or the bow for its quickness, uh, but for what they defend. Uh, so on the one hand, sure. On the other hand, though, if you read Tolkien's letters in particular, uh, he thinks it's a mistake when people read his work and think that the Shire is meant to represent a perfect time. Uh, he sees them as simply an accident of their own historical period. In other words, they are the way they are, not because he wanted them to be ideal, but because this is naturally one of the kinds of cultures that would have developed in the period in which he set the story. 
And don't get me wrong, the Shire is often idyllic. But the Shire also isn't perfect. Uh, we see that very early on. Um, so, you know, we're talking about stories. Uh, very early on, Sam uh, Gamgee is sitting at the, the Green Dragon, right? He's talking about how his cousin saw some kind of tree near the Great Forest. And Ted Sandyman, the local miller's son, who later ends up selling the mill and works at a much bigger mill and so on. <laughs> so there is still some industrialism there. But Ted Sandyman, the miller's son, steps in and says, well, I don't believe any of that nonsense. I don't believe in them. I don't, I don't believe in walking trees for sure. I don't believe in elves, which, of course, in this world really do exist. I don't believe in dragons. You know, that's my, my world is what I can see and feel and sense and touch here around me. Seeing is believing. Right. That's, that's essentially where he's gotten to. And it's not industrialism necessarily that's gotten him there. I mean, again, it's telling that it's the Miller's son who holds this opinion. Um, but, but again, the point is simply that the Shire itself was not, is not meant to be a perfect society. Uh, in fact, it's only capable of, of existing within that world because the rangers defend it all the time, and they certainly don't live in that kind of idyllic life, because if they did, then who would defend the Shire from all of the, the evil that's there? Mm-hmm. Um, I also do think, though, that it's a, bit, it's a bit short-sighted to read Tolkien as simply trying to tell us of what we need to go back to, because The Lord of the Rings itself is an outworking of... Um, not only what he did with The Hobbit before it, but what he'd been doing since about 1912, really, uh, in what we, in its semi-completed form that we now call The Silmarillion. And if you go back and read that, for instance, there's no concept of... You certainly can't read The Silmarillion as some kind of uh, take on modern life and what's wrong with it. Uh That's not its point. Uh Uh, And the Lord of the Rings comes along and it's, it's attempting to simply exist in that world and talk about things. The fact that we can apply it to a lot of our own modern life uh, does say something about it, but it doesn't necessarily say anything about its intentions. So I don't, I get that a lot of people don't like Tolkien for a whole host of reasons. Um, I love him personally. (laughs) I can tell. Uh, and, and I, th- I, th- I should I should say that that uh, uh, it's not that I don't appreciate Tolkien. Yeah. I'm just uh, it was the uh, you know, as a theologian I was I'm always asking what is the what is the theological underpinning of this? Right, and even even there, I'd say that the the key thing that that Tolkien's trying to get across is again this idea that uh, creation that nature. Um, is filled with God's grandeur. Uh, that's, that's, that's one of the chief underlying things. Uh, and, and along with that, other things as well, the fact that that material objects can have power and even will. I mean, you look at how the ring functions in the Lord of the Rings. It has, it has a will of its own. It has a desire, which is to get back with Sauron, and it, it attempts to achieve that by corrupting the people who have it. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, so there we see the the ring, if anything, is kind of like an anti-sacrament uh, in the sense that it's, it, is a, it is a physical source of great evil. Uh, and so I, I think there, there are obviously a lot of really interesting things going on there and that you can read Tolkien, even if you don't buy into industrialism, industrialization is bad. 
which if you're reading Wendell Berry, you're going to get that there anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But even if you don't buy into that, there's still a lot that can be said about the nature of reality, the nature of nature. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think anyone can appreciate uh, Tolkien's picture of evil, and it, it would be interesting to do you know, a comparison of Lewis's uh, uh, portrayal of evil and Tolkien's portrayal of evil, uh, that Lewis and some of, you know, that hideous strength, and mm-hmm. is it uh, Paralandra, that uh, uh, his, his portrayal of evil, I, 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 I'm wondering if that's a subject that, you, that you've thought about, the portrayal of evil in fiction and how that, how you've worked that out in your own, your own work. Yeah, it's, it is one of those things that, I mean, obviously has to come up at some point. And it's something that actually I think is getting in some ways harder to deal with as we, as we move forward, because, you know, it's easy. I think it's easy to misunderstand both Lewis and Tolkien on this. Um, Lewis would say the Calamine in, uh, in the, the Chronicles of Narnia and Tolkien with like the Harad uh, and others in the Lord of the Rings. Um, but, you know, in the past it was easy to, vilify the other, the foreigner, right? It was, it was easier because you had no intercourse with them. Um, you know, you think, you think back even to, and this, this was already inappropriate at the time, but you think back to, uh, even when I was a kid, we would still play cowboys and Indians, right? Uh-huh. And the cowboys were generally the good guys and the Indians were the bad guys. Uh, and that was easier to do because none of us had ever really encountered a Native American. Right, uh, right. It was easy to do because the stories that we had, that, you know, our culture had told itself about these things were that the cowboys were the good guys and the Native Americans were the bad guys. Uh, and so on, on that front, who gets to be the bad guy gets harder and harder and harder, I think. Um, and you see this actually playing out. I have twin toddlers, and so we watch a fair amount of, like, PBS and other other thing and you know you look at who the bad guys are and often there either is no bad guy or they're only temporarily bad guys or or whatever you know no one can just be the bad guy Mm -hmm. um so on the one hand you have that kind of going on uh and i i suppose to a certain extent i got around that by both recognizing that no one is totally evil and yet also having a non-human people group that i could just make my evil character (laughs) So the other became evil. <laughs> in, in a sense. And this is actually, so this is something that Tolkien really struggled with, with his goblins, with his orcs. Mm-hmm. Uh, this notion that, are they, are they irredeemable? Uh, and so that's something that I actually try to take up in my own book, uh, is the redeemability of, of who is evil. And it's the reason Tolkien struggled with that is because otherwise he actually does a really good job of keeping an Augustinian understanding of evil. And I think Lewis does the same thing, that there's nothing that's purely, totally evil. Because if something's purely, totally evil, it can't exist. Uh Because Augustine sees evil as a privation and a perversion. It's either a lack of goodness or it's the perversion of something that is good. Uh, So, you know... Uh Looking, looking at different versions of how the goblins came about in Tolkien, for instance, sometimes they're elves that have been mangled and distorted, and then we've just perpetuated that genetic line, essentially. Uh-huh. Um, and Lewis actually does something very similar. So you brought up Paralandra. 
there we get the bad guy is a guy who's been possessed by some kind of demon. It's, you know, it's never made clear, is it the devil or is it just a devil? Uh-huh. But it doesn't matter. He's, he's possessed. And yet, spoiler for those who haven't read Paralandra, uh, after Lewis kills him, he then writes a monument to him, you know, gives him essentially a gravestone on Paralandra. Because even though he was a pretty terrible human being, which we see in Out of the Silent Planet, you know, before he's possessed by demons, he's still pretty bad. Uh-huh. He was still a human being. He still did work that ought to be remembered uh, in biology because he was a biologist. Uh, or no, he was a physicist. I'm sorry, he was a physicist initially. So this notion that, that nothing, nothing is purely evil. Was that the brain and the vat? Uh... No, that, that is a beheaded... Uh, chemist, I believe, Alcazan, who was French, and he poisoned his wife, and so... No, because Weston... So Weston is the main bad guy in both Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra, and his body is left on Paralandra. Uh, So they can't get his head. No, uh, Alcazan was guillotined by the French for murdering his wife. uh And the the bad guys took his head. (laughs) So in in that sense, with with Lewis, you know, you get the, the in a sense he he melds a quite ordinary world. Uh, that uh, that here's a college professor, and it's you know it's it's this ordinary world that we're all familiar with, in which he locates what I would call something on the order of radical evil, mm-hmm. and and by that I understand it's a uh, I understand the problem with. In other words, radical evil uh, in the sense, even in an Augustinian recognition, well, in the end, there is no such thing. Right. Yes, but in given a certain belief system and a certain set of parameters, there are people who live as if there is such a thing. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, in fact... So that hideous strength, it's actually one of my favorites. I think it's the unsung hero of what I call the cosmic trilogy of Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, that hideous strength. Paralandra is usually recognized as the best of the three, and I don't disagree with that assessment. I just love that hideous strength. Um, but so, so Lewis actually does something, and I think, I think that he's actually getting this from uh, George MacDonald. Uh, 19th century, he was a 19th century author. He was a Presbyterian minister, later became Anglican, good friends with Lewis Carroll of uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and actually, I think he's getting this from Dante as well. And so here's what I mean. In, in Dante, which is where this really kind of originates, we get in the Inferno uh, down in the, the Ninth Circle in the Treacherous. We find out that there are some people walking around on Earth who have committed so much evil that their souls have already been damned and a demon has taken up residence in their bodies. Uh, so we see, we see that going on, right? That, that happens in the Inferno. Well, fast forward about 700 years to, <laughs> well, no, 600 some years, oh. to George MacDonald, who writes, uh, he writes a ton of stuff that's excellent, but he writes two books that a lot of people are familiar with, The Princess and Curdie and the Princess, or The Princess and the Goblin and The Princess and Curdie. Princess and Curdie is the sequel, and in that, Curdy has to go on a mission and he's given a gift by the grandmother who's 
kind of our stand-in for God in a way in the stories. And the gift that he's given is he can shake a person's hand and he can feel what animal they're turning into. So in other words, in this world, in a sense, people who are going bad are reverting to a purely animalistic state. That is, in a sense, they're losing their rational soul. So again, think back to Dante, where the rational soul can actually get damned before the body does. Uh-huh. Uh, so he gets his ability to shake, and he can tell, is it a hoof, uh, a scaly fin, whatever. Uh, and he does. He, he encounters people who are slowly turning back into animals, uh-huh. as well as encountering animals that were probably once people, uh, which is a really interesting thing in the book. Now, Lewis actually takes this up in, I believe it's Prince Caspian, where uh, you find out that some of the uh, some of the talking animals have reverted to uh, non-rational states. Mm-hmm. So they once were talking animals, and now they're not. Now they're dumb animals. And Lucy says something along the lines of, wouldn't it be terrible if things like that happened in our world, where on the outside they still look like people, but on the inside they're slowly turning back into animals. And so I think, I think we're seeing that play out in a lot of ways when we encounter the possessed Weston in Paralandra, and when we encounter um, various members of the NICE, of the National uh, Institute of Coordinated Experiments or something along those lines. I can't remember exactly the acronym is for. But we encounter similar things as we go along, people who particularly in that hideous strength in the characters of uh, Mr. Frost and Withers, of people who are retreating from their rational selves, which is particularly funny for, I think it's Dr. Frost actually, because he claims to adhere to pure reason, but they're actually losing their rational selves and are reverting back to an animal-like state. And that comes to a head at, at, towards the end of the book when animals are unleashed and battle is reinstated uh-huh. and so on. And so, again, it, but it is this idea. It's still this. So you're right. There is this kind of radicalness to it. Uh-huh. And even radical in the sense of a return to roots, right? Because they're, they're devolving, essentially, uh-huh. on the inside. Uh, but we see that working out um, in Lewis, and yet it still falls into that Augustinian framework where it's, it's a privation, right? It's a loss of the goodness. And yet, it, yet, and yet what you're describing, and I think what Lewis is doing, is that evil is, is somehow not simply a disempowerment, uh, but in fact it, it is in some way more than human sin, more than human evil more than we can comprehend that there's something supraordinary in Lewis's portrayal of evil. Well, and that, that I think gets at the fact that um, when we talk about Augustinian evil, we don't simply mean privation, we don't simply mean an absence of goodness, but we also mean perversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that good things are perverted to evil ends, and that gives them, that gives them a kind of power. Um, you know, the, the best lies are those the little truth mixed in. Right, and that's something again that we see in Paralandra, where the 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 unman, as he starts to call the possessed Weston, uh, is telling the lady of Paralandra the lies, and yet Ransom can't fully refute them because he's not technically wrong. It's the way he's portraying it that is wrong, and yet how do you convey how do you convey what's true 
<laughs> in in the face of that, how do you convey what's true? And uh, in Paralandra, the answer to a certain extent is to remove the tempter, um, even by violence. But in that hideous strength, it's it's in a sense, and this is, and to an extent, this is my own project. It's it's out narrating, right? It's and you see this in Paralandra as well that Ransom's character has to out narrate the tempter. He has to show why his vision of reality, his vision of goodness. Uh-huh. are not the best are not are not the truest sure there's some truth sure there's some goodness and there has to be that's what makes evil so evil sometimes is because there's still truth goodness and beauty mixed up in them uh-huh. because they still exist um but it's about out narrating them and that's that's what you really see and that's where i think tolkien really kind of hits it out of the park in a way that lewis often doesn't lewis one way I've heard it explained, and I really like this, is you know Lewis is more the the prose author and Tolkien more the poet. Lewis is the teacher, and and Tolkien is the poet. Lewis tells us, uh-huh. right? He tells us through the actions of his characters, through their speeches, what's going on. He tells us what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. Tolkien shows us, uh-huh. uh, and you can see this particularly when like Lewis sets out to write what is a story he writes this thing all about castle building and, and it's really interesting, but it's very didactic. When Tolkien sets out to do the same thing, he starts like writing fairy tales. A great example of this is when he went to write an introduction to George MacDonald's, the golden key, one of his fairy tales. He tries to tell people what a fairy tale is. Well, as he starts doing that, he just starts writing a fairy tale that becomes Smith of Wooten major. One of my favorite works by Tolkien uh-huh. and the introduction never gets written. <laughs> no, <laughs> because because what all, he said what he had to say mm-hmm. he said what he had to say by writing the story mm-hmm. but the point on either end is that and this this to me is how christians ought to react to say secular culture is that our job isn't to adapt it our job isn't to react to it our job is to out narrate it mm-hmm. our job is to show why christianity is you know true good and beautiful uh-huh. And so, sure, sometimes that means trying to lay out, you know, proofs for God's existence or whatever. Uh, but often, especially in this age, does it mean doing things that are good? And that's the, I think that the, the, that your whole, your deep appreciation uh, uh, is, is one that uh, arises and is connected to the, the journey that, uh, I think the best part of radical orthodoxy uh, that there is a this sense of modernity in some way uh, leaving us uh, in a in a kind of a flat you know a flat land yeah and uh, that but the the uh, my criticism and you know I, and I never quite I, I've always wanted to ask you this because I never understood if I quite got the right sense of things. Mm-hmm. You know, my own, my own work uh, was uh, just about sin, and, and the, uh, Zizek is a kind of, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in a psychoanalytic sense. But uh, what I felt was being discovered in somebody like Derrida or in, 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 a, uh, in a kind of postmodern, understanding of the problems with modernity 
I never limited it or thought that it was limited to modernity, mm. but that it was just simply a manifestation of a universal problem, a universal predicament. I said nearly as much to Connor Cunningham mm-hmm. that uh, I, I, I may not have said it quite that blatantly. You know, this was Derrida's own, his, his own critique of, of, I can't, he was at a conference somewhere and somebody spoke of his work as if it was in some way simply a critique of modernity. And he said, why limit it to modernity? It's a, it's a, it's a, a critique that exceeds that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm, I'm curious if that is your sensibility that, you know, it's sort of like, uh, that with, mill bank and company that they've said oh we've fallen again and what we call the second fall is modernity right right so i think i mean i think there are some ways in which at least practically that's true uh for radical orthodoxy like that's that's often how they write um but i also i know that they recognize that there were you sins still happened in the middle ages (laughs) <laughs> yeah right right you know people were still sinful and they recognize that mm-hmm. um i think the reason that they so often focus on modernity and admittedly it's a, it's an emphasis of mine as well to i mean to a much lesser extent uh is simply because that's that's the problem that we have now and there are things from pre-modernity there are things from the middle ages there are things from the antique period that if we were to reclaim them can help us uh overcome the particular problems of modernity but what isn't needed and and i know that the millbank and, and everybody know this as well is what isn't needed is a simple return right to pre-modernity it's not simply as it's 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 not the fact that there's been a second fall and that fall is what we call modernity and that started somewhere around the 14th century with John Don Scotus mm. and right, right. finalized with the Enlightenment right that's that's not the case and and you can they that's that's not how they really conceive of it um, even if it feels that way sometimes uh, because there there is a recognition that the Middle Ages was not a perfect period. Mm-hmm. Um, that it had its own problems. Uh, the key, I think, is recognizing where both, for Milbank, the key is recognizing that our woes began in that period, and so perhaps we can find some of our solutions uh-huh. in that period or before it, uh-huh. uh, since they're deviations from things. But also that, um, and this is this is kind of, if, if radical orthodoxy has kind of two sides to it, and I think it does, one of them is this critiquing modernity and post-modernity by post-modernity. Uh-huh. Right? It's, it's, critiquing, it's critiquing Derrida by Derrida, right? Uh-huh. It, it's that kind of approach. There's that, and then there's also the, the ressourcement side of things, the, the return to the sources, uh, the radicalness, that return. But it's those things together. And even if you don't buy into all the, the stuff that they try to do with postmodernism, uh, it's nevertheless the recognition that whatever, whatever our era ought to be, whatever it is we're attempting to achieve right now, it's not, it's not a simple return 
Mm-hmm. But nor is it a simple moving forward, right? It's it's that whole non-identical repetition, right? It's mm-hmm. trying to bring forward the best of what has come before us uh, in a new way, in a way that makes sense for our time, recognizing yeah. the faults of the past. But but you're right. I don't think that gets emphasized nearly often enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my work, it was it was peculiarly front and center because, of course, what Lacan and Zizek are doing is a reading of Romans 7, and they're fi- finding something on the order of the Cartesian cogito mm-hmm. in Paul's description of sin. Well, wait, wait a minute. That just mixed up all the categories. Right. Uh, but I think you can do that. In other words, I think that, that what you get in uh, uh, a Cartesian notion of subjectivity, that's not unique to modernity. That's just something you can you can actually begin to lay that out as an underlying understanding that was there in the New Testament. You know? mm-hmm. so, and I, I and I didn't get any. I said that something like that to Cunningham and. He said, "Sure, yes, of course." You know, I go, well, wait a minute. Why? Why are you agreeing with me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's one of those things that that they know that they agree with that. Uh, it's just that's not the emphasis. That, that for them, the key is often we need we need to get to a point where we're recognizing that there are things that we used to do and we've left behind, and we shouldn't have left them behind. Uh, and that that is often, I think, the starting place for a lot of them. Uh, and so it, it, it's the same thing like, like Milbank's kind of dedication to Duns Scotus being the source of all things. It ends up making the Franciscans the problem in general. But, of course, it's not exactly that Milbank hates all Franciscans. It's just in order to emphasize his point, that's kind of what ends up coming out. And admittedly, he has a love-hate relationship with the Franciscans anyway. <laughs> but, and I think he's wrong. Uh, not always, but anyway, the point being that, that that I think it's too strong to call it uh, myopia, but it's it's certainly close to being myopic. Uh, focus on the, re- on the reclamation can cause us to forget that every period has its own problems in that sin, as you've been talking about, and the evil have existed from well, if not the very beginning, very close to it. David, this has been a wonderful conversation. I just feel like we could uh, go on. Uh, I, I have no idea how long we've <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I've always thought that, uh, that you were a prime example of someone who has benefited so richly from the journey that you've made, that, that you, you've, uh, you've picked up the best parts of, uh, you know, I think what's there in radical orthodoxy, what's there in, in recent theology, and you're using it in such a creative fashion. So, well, thank you. I hope, I hope uh, uh, you sell lots of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's your your prospects then uh, uh the 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 elf land goes on uh possibly there um there are a few things that have been knocking around up here uh right now my next project is actually writing a book uh talking about 
So when, when one of, I had, I have twin boys and when they were eight weeks old, one of them was diagnosed with cancer. He's since been declared cancer free, has been for almost three years. Uh, but a lot of things happened during really the short two, three months uh, that we were living in cancer world. Uh, so that's, that's what I'm working on right now is, is a book on that that's going to touch on suffering and, and seeing things rightly, uh, kind of reclaiming vision and that kind of stuff. But that's, that's the big project right now. We'll look forward to that. Dave, thanks so much, and uh, I'll, uh, I hope we can uh, uh, do this again.